Hello and welcome to Beyond the Music Score. It is good to be recording the holiday episode of this podcast. Today's episode is going to focus on some classical music that will be focusing on the holiday slash winter pieces of classical music. The composers that we'll be focusing on is Gabriel Ferrer, George Frederick Handel, and the Italian composer Antonio Vivaldi, yes. And the pieces that will be going with these composers are Ferrer's Requiem, The Messiah, and The Four Seasons. And these are selections from said pieces that are going with the said seasons, a winter and holidays and Christmas. So when we go through this podcast episode we're going to hear some sections of music that reflect the holiday season the christmas holiday whatever you think of christmas and and the holiday as a whole and since this is the holiday season i think it's appropriate that we talk about this season in in classical music as a whole and what makes and what makes this holiday and this holiday is important because on Monday I will not be making a ho- I will not be making an episode uh, because I'll be celebrating it with my my family. But as a tr- as a true visionary of the holiday, I want you to enjoy your Christmas. And so, as a, also I want to add just a little more uh, disclaimer. Um, this holiday episode is going against another holiday episode I'll be adding with my other podcast, Thinking From My Mind. At the end of this episode, there's a little, you know, sneak peek from Tchaikovsky's The Nutcrackers, so there will be other additions to that. So, without further ado, this is the special holiday episode. The very first piece of music, music, excuse me, for this holiday season that we are going to look at is the f- last concerto, which is Winter by Vivaldi from his Four Seasons. This is one of my favorite movements of all time. The very first, the very first movement is exquisite, and I can't tell you what extraordinary sound that Vivaldi composed. So, 
a little background for the entire piece as a whole. The four seasons were composed in 1777 by Vivaldi, who was a priest who taught at a girls' school. And he happened to compose this throughout his life. And this is the only known work that he's known for. There's other works. That is the most famous work he's known for. And this will not be published until 1977. Okay? The works of Vivaldi, every work from the Four Seasons to his Goria Oratorio, were all stashed away for 250 years, if I am correct. And granted, that's just what I have been learning and what I've been told. But in 1977, so a couple of decades later, Vivaldi's works were all being recorded and discovered and thanks to conductors such as James Levine and Leonard Bernstein. All these works of Vivaldi were all discovered and now they're being performed by bunch of violinists such as this particular violinist that you're about to hear, Joshua Bell, are extraordinaire. And of course we have the other violinists such as Isaac Proman and Hilary Hun are extra like perfect violinists to play these wonderful concertos. So the one that you're about to hear is the first movement from his winter concerto. Concerto in F minor. This particular one is the last one in a series of four concertos. Concerto, concertos for violin and small orchestra. And pretty much this entire piece of music, which was entitled The Four Seasons, each having a concerto for each season, spring, summer, autumn, and winter, the last one is very famous, including the first movement, which you're about to hear. And each of the seasons came with a poem or sonnet. And based on the sonnet, which, came, which went like, I'm going to paraphrase. The sonnet went like this. Winter. To stamp their feet in the freezing cold. To your teeth would shatter. To glide your your feet would glide against the ice. The sonnet of winter basically describes your time outside. The ice cold wind will blow against your skin and it will be freezing. Not much like today where there's no icy wind because the temperature outside is literally 45 degrees. <laughs> then years pass, it would be like minus 20 degrees and it would be just like what the sonnet of this piece would describe. But since each of these moments are quite, quite short, I think I'll let you hear it for yourself.
The next movement of the Winter Concerto is actually my favorite part of this entire piece. I think it's one of Vivaldi's most favorite pieces. I don't know. But personally, if you want to put this against the third movement, I think this is one of my favorite. And personally, I would love to hear this complete. So. I would add that this is one of my favorite pieces. The very first time I heard this live was in 2003-4 and I had a friend who had a mom who played in a chamber orchestra and so she played the cello and I'll go back to uh, the cello because I have a friend who played the cello and I'm going to piece it. Uh, in an orchestra, but this one will come back constantly. So, we heard the Four Seasons live in concert, and when it came to this movement from the winter, se winter section, <clears throat> it became very, very simple. There is nothing, it's very floating, but it's described in the sonnets that it's like putting yourself in a winter cabin with a fireplace. Well, the rain, not snow, because sometimes it rained in winter in Italy, but rain pelting down on the on the path in, in the cabins, and as it rained, it just sounds very romantic. And so you can hear the pitter patter of the rain in this music. I would describe this as a very harsh winter, while the while the fireplace just roars. So, just listen to that.
romantic. A little fast for my taste, but what can you argue with a romantic piece like that? I would consider it to be the most romantic. The next movement, and actually the last one, is very serene, but also it's also one of those movements that tell you an actual definite story. The last movement is what Vivaldi describes of people gliding upon the ice, falling as they go. And as they go on, this describes winter. This describes the winter season. The beginning of the winter solstice. As it now as you know, that was last week. But now this begins the winter solstice. And this is what the last movement of the winter piece of the Four Seasons is really about. Thank you. 
Remember when I said I was going to do a little synopsis of the Nutcracker? Well, this is a good time where I'm going to tell you the story of the Nutcracker. And to do that, I need to open with the overture. So, this is my summary of the Nutcracker. Some of you may know that the story before the Nutcracker Ballet, Drossemeyer, Marie's godfather, had a nephew and was cursed to be a Nutcracker. So in the beginning of some productions of the Nutcracker, we see Drossemeyer preparing to leave for the Stumbaum's Christmas party. And so when you see him prepare, he picks up the Nutcracker, what happens to be his nephew. We put it into we put this nutcracker into a gift box, wrap it up, and head to the Christmas party. And so this is something that I should point out when the overture which you, which you're hearing in the background is a little tidbit for those who go to a production of the nutcracker, whether it's the, the US version or a UK version or European version. You probably see this version quite often when you see Drossemeyer preparing during the overture. Just something you might just, I might point out because it's a little detail that probably gets passed over in the UK, in the United States versions of Nina Crocker. It's usually not something in the UK, but it's something that we kind of brush over here in the United States.
It is Christmas Eve in 1832 in the Stombaum household. Dr. and Mrs. Stombaum are going to prepare for their Christmas party that is happening that night. It is the 24th of December and their children, Marie and Fritz Stombaum, are watching their parents prepare for the Christmas party. As the guests file in one by one, they see the children and their friends and their relatives pile into the great dining hall. And each one of them presents them with a gift until they see their very mysterious but loving godfather Drosselmeyer enter with a bunch of gifts. The man is shrouded in mystery. With an eye patch covering his eye, he presents dolls from different, different, and slightly different origins of country and origin. A doll from France and dolls from Russia. One of them is Columbine, the dancing doll, and the other one is Batushka, because I mean that from the which I mean that seriously, from Stravinsky's time, that Stravinsky did not invent Petrushka. They dance a, a very solitary dance, meaning with love and, and, and just glorifying and amazes the guests, including the children. And then when it gets to the Russian dancers, Drosselmeyer cranks the keys and they dance to the heart's content.
The guests are now weighing down, and Marie is starting to wonder if she ever gets a gift until she looks underneath the Christmas tree. She realizes that the gift is addressed to her and is from her loving godfather. She opens the gift and it's a nutcracker doll that was constructed by him. She goes over to her godfather and kisses him thank you. And she starts to play with the nutcracker, dances with him and make merry with him. Fritz is obviously jealous by this warm of affection and wonders if he could ever have a gift like this. But when he's presented with a nut, He's obviously offended and asks his godfather, what is this for? The godfather takes the nutcracker, opens his mouth and cracks it. Obviously, the doll is not just meant for playing, it is an obvious tool. And then when he presents the cracked nut to Fritz, he is obviously offended. But Marie is content. She plays with her dolls, with her best friends and cuddles him and cuddles with him and just is so happy that she has a toy. But when Fritz is overly jealous, he grabs the doll, runs with it, taunts his own sister with it and breaks it. Not knowing that the thing is very much fragile. His godfather is overly enraged, picks him up and carries him out the room and takes him off the bed, setting him to bed without dinner. In some productions, his own father and mother take him off the bed. But in this, in this particular story, I'm taking, uh, taking inspiration from a German production that I saw on television. Once he returns, he takes the nutcracker from Murray, sets him on his knee, and proceeds and proceeds to fix the nutcracker by wrapping a handkerchief around his neck, fixing the broken part, or at least temporarily fixing the broken half. Marie is overjoyed that his that he can then that Drossemeyer can fix the broken doll, kissing him, giving him a peck on the cheek, and the festivities continue with a very and obviously rambunctious dance that the elder. Jossa Myers proceed to lead into.
Now the party has finished. The guests head home. And as they do, Marie, Fritz, Mr. and Mrs. Stombaum, and in some cases is Dr. Stombaum, say farewell to their guests, including Dr. Drossemeyer, who kissed his godchildren each on the head and leaves and leaves, excuse me, leaves in a mysterious way. He, you won't see the last of Dr. Stombaum. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. It is very tiring. You won't see the last of Dr. Drossemeyer in that because he has a special gift for Marie and what she has in store later on. She and her brother head to bed as well as their parents, and the rest of the whole house is silent. At least that's where we're led to believe. Later down the line, when it's around almost 12 in the morning, Marie creeps back downstairs to see if her nutcracker is alive and well. Except all is not as it should be, for who she might meet downstairs? Why, her beloved godfather is sitting in an armchair, in an armchair, with his back turn, turned towards her. And as he turns around, the clock over the fireplace on the mantel chimes twelve. Oh, did I forget there's mice in this story? <laughs> I've forgotten that there is mice in this story. So apparently, if you ever hear the original tale, that I will give you just a little bit of more context. A mouse king is involved. And so... The Mice King, in this case, the Mouse King, has sent his minions out to take revenge on the death of some other mice and has decided to blame the Nutcracker on this. And so, what follows is a battle between the toys and the mice, and culminating in the Mouse King and the Nutcracker battling it out. If you've ever seen this on stage, it is an amazing battle. I won't get into this throughout the whole story because actually this is not hard I don't want to actually hear this whole thing it's long but what follows is that the Nutcracker des defeats the Mouse King and he decides to take Clara or Marie whichever you see but in this case Marie helps the Nutcracker defeat the Mouse King and in gratitude of her service and her help he decides to take her to the land of sweets 
and in doing so, they run, they run into the Snow Queen, who helped them take a chariot of ice to the land of sweets where they meet the Sugar Plum Fairy. I have forgotten to mention that most of Tchaikovsky's music within the ballet are waltzes. Most notably, the most famous waltz in this ballet, besides the most grand waltz in The Sleeping Beauty and the waltz in Swan Lake, this is the closest, most famous waltz that I will think of. Besides the most famous waltz in this ballet, the waltz of the snowflakes. The snowflake waltz in Act 1 is actually a close second. The most famous waltz in this ballet by far is the waltz of the flowers. It is the most famous waltz that Tchaikovsky ever wrote for this ballet. And so what you're about to hear is a section of beautiful music combining a children's choir and a waltz. In combination, it is the Waltz of the Snowflakes. I'm going to give you a little bit of taste of what it sounds like, starting with the beginning, the middle, and the end. This whole waltz is actually six and a half minutes long, so depending on how it's recorded, this entire waltz, is, it can go on for about six to seven minutes, depending on how it's recorded or how beautifully it's choreographed on stage. But for our purposes, we're going, I'm going to give you a little bit of highlights of this waltz. As mentioned, this follows right after the defeat of the Mouse King and Marie and the Nutcracker Prince have just entered the snowy wood and they encountered in some productions the Snow Queen and her, sh and her you know, her knight or her chalier. And they are greeted by gifts and the snow fairies are trying to take them to the land of sweets. So this entire section of music and choreography, if you ever see this on stage, is not only amazing, but they, the dancers on stage have to grapple with confetti snow. If you ever see it on stage, there's a bunch of snow that has to be dropped on stage. First light and then a heavy snowstorm that follows in some cases in some of the recordings. I'll give you an example. Here is the beginning of the waltz. And then I'm going to give you another section where the children's choir comes not just once, but several times throughout the waltz. It's just amazing.
Beautiful, huh? The walls are beginning to f like fly across the stage. If you've ever seen it, it's very much like you have this. Uh, these characters, the Nutcracker Prince, which is also Herr Drosselmeyer's nephew in some productions, and you also have Marie gliding across the stage with all these fairies, and then you have this beautiful section with the children's square. Sometimes, and I'm just going to give you my personal opinion, there's sometimes where they don't even have the choir and it's just a keyboard playing on the stage. But, I won't tell you that it's also pretty, that it's also very beautiful how Tchaikovsky was able to give you the sense of fairies flying across the stage. And I think that's what the children's choir represents, but also it's also gorgeous how Tchaikovsky was able to write a waltz such as this and how gorgeous it represents the wintertime. Just listen to this. And not only it goes on for this long, it goes on for about two minutes. So I'm going to let you hear the whole section with the, with the children's choir. It is gorgeous. And I, now, that represents Christmas, <laughs> even though Christmas was a day ago. Apologies. But, that does represent the holiday season. And that is so gorgeous that Tchaikovsky was eager to take a fairy tale that he, and I hear, and I'm ashamed to say this, didn't like. And... When I get to the end of this represent of the Nutcracker, you'll understand why most critics did not like this ballet alongside uh, Swan Lake. And it was pretty much why 
Yes, today we look at the Nutcracker and say this is a beautiful ballet for the holiday season. Why why we kind of say, why did Tchaikovsky hate the ballet? But I'll just tell you anyway, since I'm not going to lead you into suspense. And I'm just going to give you some time now to give you a little history. When we get, we're going to move on to the next act of the story. Total that intermission. So... Tchaikovsky composed this ballet in 1860, right before his death. You know, right before his death, he composed the Nutcracker. A few years before his death, right before he would compose the Thetatithic Symphony. And he spent his remainder time on this earth composing it. And this ballet was a commission for the Dzinski Ballet and his choreographer Marius Pachita, the French choreographer, was tasked to choreograph this ballet as he did with the three the two other ballets, Swan Lake and The Sleeping Beauty. And Tchaikovsky wasn't really eager but since it brought pay, he said absolutely. Now, he spent the majority of the time composing the ballet in, on, a, on a train ride that would take him the rest, half the way from Russia all the way to Paris. And then while he was doing that, because um, so you understand, he was taking a train from Rus- Russia to Paris. And then while he was on that train, he would start composing the Nutcracker. Alongside, he, would, he was composing his sixth symphony. He was on his way to the United States. He was touring several states. New York State, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. And while he was on his European, you know, while he was coming from Europe, mainly Paris, uh, he had correspondence with his brother, Modest Tchaikovsky on how he was going to relate the story from a German composer, E.T.A. Hoffman, the German composer, the German, uh, not composer, I'm sorry, the German writer who actually wrote the story to the Nutcracker, who was the author of the story that Tchaikovsky based his ballet from. And Tchaikovsky wrote a Russian translation of Hoffman's story and found it Quite irritable in 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 Plainland's terms, so he wrote he read the story, wrote the beginning act of the ballet. Then he was in Paris when Madost, his younger brother, actually no, I'm sorry, his older brother was. I want to correct myself here. His older brother had received very sad news that his younger their younger sister Shasha died at the age of 32. Tchaikovsky was in his late 40s and did not receive the news until he was in Paris in a Parisian library and was reading the Parisian newspaper when he turned to the obituaries and found out that his his beloved sister died. It corrupted him and made him extremely guilt-ridden. 
So much so it wasn't the ballet which she was writing, the Nutcracker turned from being a celebratory, celebratory, you know, tribute to the story of the Nutcracker to a tribute to his own sister. In particularly, when you hear the grand about the grand Padadou, which I will play later on, it, it turned from being a grand celebratory dance of the Sugar from Federy and her cavalier to a tribute to her sister about how they used to spend time with each other, especially at Christmas in Russia. And so, this is sort of a dark history of what the Nutcracker went from being a wholesome ballet to a very dark-sided part of the Nutcracker's history. And so, if you think that Tchaikovsky was a very happy composer, no. We all know that Tchaikovsky was riddled with depression and anxiety over the fact that he was hiding a very dark secret. Tchaikovsky, just like myself and Leonard Bernstein, was a homosexual and was a was the very first out of three composers, including myself, and adding myself to this list, was a gay man and had affairs with men. The reason why he did not admit to this is because, one, it was illegal in Russia to be, as it is today, illegal to be gay. And two, he had a, he had a sick, a six-week marriage with a woman that he had no relations to. And number, and B, he did not even like the woman. But in order for him to keep his reputation as Russia's greatest composer, he had to basically keep this marriage as a facade. That he had many male lovers, including a first cousin that he adored, right up to his death. So, the Nutcracker, the, the ballet that you watch every year in the United States, has become very much like a tribute to his his sister. So if you're listening to this right now in the car and you're listening to my selections that I picked from the ballet and you're listening to it and you probably just came from the ballet a couple of days of before or now you're going to the last showings of the ballet and you're probably listening to me speak about the history, now you know. You're welcome. The, now you understand why Tchaikovsky probably took offense to this ballet because he probably was riddled with depression. And why this ballet has a dark history to it. You know, Tchaikovsky, and many of you may not know this, but it became a surprise to me that he was a depressed composer just like Mahler and Shostakovich and a little bit of, you know, Stravinsky and all the rest of the composers that I have read about and heard about and actually researched about. And it was very sad to know that the man who wrote these three great ballets with their waltzes and their complex stories, like Swan Lake with the Redemption and Sleeping Beauty, that and that obviously inspired a Disney movie, was riddled with depression. Now, bearing that in mind. Let's not forget the incredible holiday spirit that the Nutcracker 
endured over the ten, almost 200 years that it's been on this earth with the beautiful melodies, some of which you can actually whistle and some of that that you can enjoy like the march and the tropic and the dance of the sugar plum fairy and some of the other melodies which I'm going to to let you hear that became a suite after the ballet was premiered, Tchaikovsky decided to, com- to compile some of the favorites that people enjoyed over time and composed a concert suite that made it more famous than the ballet itself. So he took what he thought was his own favorite thesis that he did enjoy composing, such as the the dance of the suites, which you're about to hear in later in the story, and put them up and made it into a suite and made it into a concert suite that he premiered a couple of months after the premiere of the ballet, and it received such a wide acclaim that we make it into the Nutcracker Suite. So, I'm not surprised that Tchaikovsky would ridicule his own work. He's done it before with the 1812 Orchestra, calling it, in his own words, a bunch of pile of noise. And that was a reference to the cannons in the overture, right, towards the finale. And so he also did that with his The Nutcracker. And now I'm going to talk about, if you let me, about why The Nutcracker received the same flop failure as it did with Swan Lake. Critics criticized The Nutcracker for its lack of story and the lack of integrity as much as it did with Swan Lake. Swan Lake received the same criticism as it as Nutcracker did. And even though the charming music kind of lifts up the the dark themes of the of the Nutcracker, the Nutcracker story is way more darker than the ballet seems to lead it on to. E ETA Hawthorne's actual fairy tale is much much, much darker than Tchaikovsky's version of the fairy tale. And I'm not going to get into the entire story because you can find videos on YouTube and people on other podcasts that cover ETA and his entire life story and how he actually wrote The Nutcracker. And you can find other creators that talk about the Nutcracker and the dark history or nest up origins of the Nutcracker. But Tchaikovsky just took the German author's story and took sections from the, the fairy tale and gnashed it up in the, into the fairy tale and the ballet that we Americans, not so much Europe, but mostly here in America, that made it into a Christmas yearly tradition around the December month holiday. And it's so fascinating that when you hear this this ballet, it's so, so fascinating about where it came from, how it became to be the yearly tradition that we Americans call Nutcracker Month. <laughs> Nutcracker year, Nutcracker season. You know, it's very, 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 you know, it's a sad history about the composer that wrote the most amazing music that we can hum and then creates melodies that we love, especially in the Nutcracker. But 
as a composer myself, and I can I can I can relate to Tchaikovsky's struggle. So I wanted to give you that little history lesson. Act two of the ballet takes place in the land of sweets. Clara or Marie and her Nutcracker Prince arrive at the land of sweets, greeted by the sugar plum fairy, who is a beautiful source of magic, and she presents them. And this is where Doctor Drosselmeyer comes into play sometimes in some productions. Then I would just say that. Only the Nutcracker Prince and Marie arrive at the Land of Sweets, and the Nutcracker tells his tale how she, how they come here, how he became a prince, how Marie saved them, and etc. etc. With this arbitrary story told, the Sugar Prong Theory presents dances from all across the world, and this is where the Nutcracker Suite takes into inspiration. Dances from Arabia, Spain, China, and even Germany itself present dances from all across the world. Since the Nutcracker Suite took inspiration from this section of the ballet, I'm going to let you hear all four dances from the suite, starting with chocolate. They're all named different suites. Starting with chocolate, which is from Spain, the Spanish dance, coffee, the Arabian dance. Tea, the Chinese dance, the tripek, the Russian dance, and the dance of the reeds, which are all the four dances that the five dances that are very famous in the Nutcracker Suite.
I really don't need to introduce this next one. And since this is a holiday special, and I know this is going to be two hours and a half of an episode because we're honoring music to go with the holiday season, even though Christmas has passed, we're still going to make this a holiday special because I consider the holidays until the end of the year. Please allow me to do that. So this whole, this next piece of music is very, very famous. It is the waltz of the flowers. This is the section where thousands upon thousands of flowers enter the hall where the Nutcracker Prince and, and Marie are greeted to see waltzing flowers dance before them. And this is the most famous waltz upon waltzes that Tchaikovsky wrote. Even, there, even though there is the waltz that he wrote for Eugenie Yegin, The Sleeping Beauty, Swan Lake, and thousands of other waltzes that he wrote, this is the most played waltz that you can hear on the radio and throughout the holiday season in counting. Please enjoy the Waltz of the Flowers.
And now we come to the grand pas of this of this ballet, between the sugar plum fairy and her prince. This is the dance that is either alternated between the sugar plum fairy and her prince, or it is Marie and her nutcracker prince. It depends on who is performing this nutcracker. Okay, it depends on who performs the nutcracker and who is choreographing it and who is actually, you know, showing it on stage. But regardless, it is a grand pas de deux. Regardless, who's which character is being presented on stage, it is an incredible pas de deux. But it does not compare to the white and black swan pas de deux in Swan Lake. But that's a different episode. But this Paradou is so well composed, but there is a twinge of darkness. Personally, and I'm going to now share a personal story. The reason why I love ballet, and particularly Tchaikovsky ballets, is because the very first ballet that I ever saw in my entire life was the Nutcracker. It was in the it was December of 2004 that I went to see a production of the Nutcracker by Michael. Pink of the Milwaukee Ballet, and it was so eye-catching, so mesmerizing, that I had begged my own mother to put me in ballet school for the next nine years, alternating between different teachers, different ballet schools, different classes, different classmates, female and male, and sometimes being the only male out of. Thirteen different females. I fell in love with the art of ballet, and it didn't matter if I had a physical disability. I practiced the hell of ballet, even to the point that I actually almost got cast as the Nutcracker Prince one year in two thousand eight. This is why I fell in love with Tchaikovsky's music, his symphonies, his ballets in particular. And why I love the Nutcracker as much as I love Swan Lake, but Swan Lake is is superior. But I will tell you that in another episode. <laughs> but for this holiday episode, I want to really stress. I want to really want to stress the 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 real. I want to hammer this in. The Tadudu that succeeds another dance that I didn't cover, which is Mother Ginger, which is a dance between Mother Ginger, a huge doll that. Opens up her little、uh, cage. To, literally, it's a cage that lets out dolls of her own, her own children. In some productions, I don't understand. And then after that dance, and after the waltz of the flowers, comes the grand pas de deux. Because it's such a long pas de deux,、um, I'm not gonna let you hear it. You gotta have to find it yourself, because it's a beautiful pas de deux. Go find it on several recordings. But I'm not gonna subject you to this because this episode is already long as it is.、Uh, I said I'm gonna make it two hours long because I want to talk about another piece of classical music, which is the Messiah. So we want to get to that. So moving from there, we're gonna talk about the most famous part of the ballet, which is the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. After her prince, after the Sugar Plum Fairy ha-、uh, and, and the Cavalier have their dance, and the Cavalier has. His own dance. We come to the most famous piece, 
that gets played every year, and sometimes I don't understand that people are frightened by this piece. I read when I went on YouTube and played this piece over and over. I read some comments on YouTube, but people are frightened by this piece because it's used in horror films. That it's that it's stupid. I don't know why it's so stupid. The Dance of the Sugar Plum Theory is the most overplayed piece of classical music because it's used in pop culture. And I don't know why, but this piece has become so synonymous and infamous in pop culture, but it's also pretty as well. Because it's such a tortoise, this is the dance of the sugar plum fairy. With everything and everyone celebrating the coming of of Marie or Clara, they decide to send her on her way to new foreign lands. Her and her Nutcracker Prince get into a sleigh, and they are set off on new adventures to explore new and foreign lands, and hence the end of the ballet. That is just one production of the Nutcracker, and the story that I told was a production by George Valenstein. But otherwise, that is the most famous ballet story that I can tell you, and the most famous ballet 
ever. Handel's Messiah is not only one of the greatest pieces of music, but it contains one of the greatest choral ever written. And the most incredible thing is, it is still being played around the holiday season as well as Easter. I'm going to give you some selections, and then at the end, I'm going to play the Hallelujah Chorus, as well as Worthy is the Lamb. If anyone knows the oratorio, it is basically the story of the coming of Christ. I'm not going to be preachy here, but I'm just going to hear some sections of it since this podcast has already done so long. But this entire piece of music is so synonymous with the holiday that I must stress that this holiday season, I hope you all know that the Messiah, whether you are religion, or, or you, if you are religious or not, is just a incredible piece of music just to fill you with the holiday cheer. The beginning of the Messiah always starts with a symphony, or in this case, an overture. But sometimes it's just called a symphony because, again, Handel and Haydn and all those composers around the 1700s never called their pieces that opened their oratorios an overture. But in this case, for the modern ears that might be listening, this is technically an overture.
You may have to rise for this version of Hallelujah. If you are sitting, rise. If you cannot rise, then stay where you are, because we all know the significance of this piece of music. Whether you are religious or not, we know the significance of that day, the day that the angels sang Hallelujah. Christ has risen, or Christ was born. I am not religious, but the piece itself has a very beautiful meaning, and I love this piece. Rise. Yeah. 
I'll not share a story with you that I take some time out of this episode, but I'll not share this story. I text why I love Christmas so much is because of this one little time out of my out of my holiday cheer is <laughs> that one year in two thousand two my mother was obsessed with Christmas and she she took the extra time out of her day to go and donate to charity. And my mother, bless her, always had just the ring of aura of kindness and charity. And all she did was just donate to the charities across the nation. Okay. So what you know is that my mother was, excuse me, was a mother, was a mother that had a good heart. And so what you are left with is a good Samaritan. A Samaritan that truly know how to please people in this world. Regardless of skin color, creeds, backgrounds, whether you are rich or poor. My mother was a kind-hearted woman that knew how to please you and be your friend. I take after this motto, this motto, this model of being a good Samaritan. And that is why every Christmas season, I try to inspire everyone. And no matter where you're from, no matter where you come from, you're always welcome to be who you are in this world. And so this holiday season, while you're listening to this holiday episode on Beyond the Music Score, I hope you are always looking towards the best. Let go of your negativity. Let go of your, your anger, your frustration. Don't stick of politics. Don't stick of everything. Let this be a ring of the new year as you come into the new year of 2024. Happy holidays to everyone. Now I'll let you hear Lurthy is the Lamb. And I did forget that there's another section of this piece that's called Amen to end this episode.
Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to all of you out there, and may your New Year be bright and happy, and may we have a happy 2024.